Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on catch-up, to the Byline Times podcast. This time, the opening of a new session of Parliament and what my colleague on Byline Times, Adam Biankoff, calls the culture war Queen's speech. Adam writes at bylinetimes.com that there's nothing in the 38 new bills outlined today to address the cost of living crisis, arguably the most pressing issue in public life today. But there is plenty of red meat, or should that be blue meat, to keep the headline writers of The Sun and The Daily Mail happy. There'll be laws to attack what the government likes to call cancel culture on campus. More restrictions on the right to protest, a new Bill of Rights, but promised import bans on foie gras and animal fur haven't been included, despite previous promises that they would be a real appeal there to the uh, traditional conservative backbencher. As I say, we'll hear from Adam Biankoff shortly and from June Pang from the campaign group Liberty, but we'd love to hear from you as well. If you want to join in and you're listening live on Byline Radio, you have to be listening on your smartphone and you have to have the Twitter app. Sorry, I don't make the rules. Twitter do. But if you are listening on your phone and via the Twitter app, be interesting to gather some of your thoughts about the key issues arising from the Queen's speech today. So just tap that microphone icon in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen and we'll try and get a few of you on as we go through the evening. Before we get cracking, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, which is our wonderful monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep Matharo. It is truly what the papers don't say. And we're all about reporting without fear or favour, telling it like it is. You can find out how to subscribe over at our website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. If you do head over there, you will see an article by Adam Biankoff, and it is headlined, Let Them Eat Foie Gras. Big issues avoided in Johnson's Culture War Queen's Speech. So that's your big take out then, Adam. This is a, a Culture War Queen's Speech. Yes, as I wrote for Barland Times today, this Queen's speech was as interesting, if not more interesting, for what wasn't in there as, as for what was in there. So uh, there was these new measures on clamping down on protest, on free speech on campus, but there wasn't really any sort of concrete new action on, on what the public say is the number one issue, and certainly the number one issue in, in last week's local elections, which is the cost of living. No new measures to help people with their heating or the bills, nothing on employment, nothing on, on any of these issues that people are facing as, as, as their heating bills and, and their food bills are, are soaring. So this was, as you say, it was more to do with kind of shoring up the support on the conservative benches and of course, stoking a cultural war with the Labour Party, which is how Johnson and, and Downing Street believe they can win the next election by by sort of finding these wedge issues with the Labour Party, shoring up their base, but not actually tackling the big issues that the public say they care about. Yeah, I mean, the, Boris Johnson has today promised, hasn't he, to help the, those people who are hardest hit by surging living costs. And there is a I think commentary both by him and Rishi Sunak to the effect that we will hear something in the next few days, a kind of vaguely defined promise to deal with the cost of living crisis. Well, yes, indeed. He did say in, in in the introduction to the Queen's speech that they're going to help the hardest hit. But when you actually drill down into these 38 new pieces of legislation, there's nothing in there at all. And when we, we asked uh, Johnson's spokesman today, 
Will there be a new sort of uh, fiscal event where they, where new measures will be announced to help people with the cost of living? They w- wasn't weren't able to commit to to anything along those lines. So we, yes, we we may well see something in in the coming days, but there was certainly nothing in in the Queen's speech suggests that that's coming down the track. Yeah, one of the things that will appeal, you suspect, to the Conservative base is this promise to introduce uh, bills that will get rid of some of the so-called Brexit red tape, isn't it? The Brexit Freedoms Bill, mm. which will allow it to make it more easy to to remove what they describe as EU rules. One of the ironies, of course, of, of Brexit is that so far what it's delivered is more red tape, not less, because businesses have to fill in special forms now to do trade with Europe, which they didn't have to do previously. People might find themselves waiting in longer passport queues because they can no longer sail through the EU passport queue if they are abroad. So, so far, we've seen the opposite of what the government promised. So this is the the, the kind of a theme that's beloved of Conservative Prime Ministers, the bonfire of red tape. Yes. Well, I mean, that, indeed, I mean, that, and that's the great irony of of Brexit and this the supposed Brexit freedoms bill that you know we don't actually know what what this is going to contain. But uh, yes, as you say, the the irony is that the the main impact that people have noticed from Brexit is a reduction of freedoms, the reduction to of freedoms to be able to live and work wherever you like in in Europe, the freedom to to travel um, easily, go from country to country, the freedom to to trade and to do business with our closest partners, and that's. That all of those freedoms have been curtailed or or lost, and it's not entirely clear what new freedoms we're going to get to replace them. So far, we haven't really seen much at all. No, and uh, we'll talk more in detail about this with June, but the decision or the intention to replace the Human Rights Act, I mean, this is kind of key mm. part of, I'd say, right-wing Tory ideology. It's the sort of thing that y- you've read about in opinion columns in the Telegraph and the Daily Mail for years, getting rid of the European Convention on Human Rights, which many people incorrectly conflate with the European Union. They are two quite separate things. But the decision to, or the intention, as I say, to get rid of that and replace it with a, a UK Bill of Rights. We'll have our own Bill of Rights, but which many commentators are, are already fearing will actually lead to an erosion of our rights. Yes, well, I'm sure uh, June can speak, speak more to that, but uh, it's, I mean, I I, I think that we don't know exactly what this bill is going to contain. I, I suspect there's probably it's probably more rhetoric than that than anything concrete. Uh, we are still signed up to the EHRC, and uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced this is going to be um, as dramatic a, a departure as, as the rhetoric within the, the Queen's speech suggested, um, but but I'm sure June can, can speak more on that. OK, well, let's bring in June now from the campaign group Liberty. Hi, June, you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Hi. So am, I, am I right or have I got that wrong? This wouldn't replace the... Uh, am I right in thinking this... Uh, have I made a mistake there? It won't replace the European Convention on Human Rights. It'll replace the Human Rights Act. Are, are those two separate things? Yes. Um, so they are separate things. Um, the Human Rights Act was introduced in 1998 um, and started coming into force in the UK in 2000 as a way of kind of incorporating the human rights protections in the European Convention that the UK has been, well, was actually the first signatory to after the Second World War. But just in response to what you've said, Adam, and and thanks for the introduction as well, because I think it really diagnoses some of the really 
concerning ways that the government is framing this kind of what we call in no uncertain terms a power grab designed to effectively erode all mechanisms of accountability whether in the courts at the ballot box in parliament or on the streets this is in our view a real material threat the government and you know successive governments have been trying to repeal the human rights act in some form for you know as long as it has existed for the past you know two decades and a half but this is the closest that um, we've ever gotten to actually repealing the Human Rights Act. And while the government has said that it's committed to re- remaining you know, a signatory to the European Convention, even though it has now decided to scrap the Human Rights Act, a lot of the really concerning proposals pave the way for our eventual exit um, from the European Convention in ways that will drastically and negatively impact all of our ability to stand up to power. Okay, I'll come to that in a moment. June, uh, there's a slight kind of tapping on your microphone. You may not be doing anything untoward on that. It may just be the the technology. But if uh, if you are tapping anything, if you could avoid doing that, that would be wonderful because it's just a little bit uh, scratchy. So, again, let me just understand this because, you know, perhaps a little bit uh, slow on these things. The Human Rights Act incorporates the European Convention on Human Rights. So if we were to repeal the Human Rights Act, does that mean, in effect, that Britain is no longer a signatory to the European Convention and that we would instead have this UK Bill of Rights? No, not at all. And yeah, sorry, let me know if the mic is still... It's better. It's Um, great. It's good. Okay, great. Okay, I'll just keep holding on to the mic. Um, It's a really good question and I think a really useful clarification. So as I said... um, The UK has been a signatory to the European Convention since the 50s when it was first introduced um, and we played a really important role in writing it and essentially the UK has always had obligations to protect people's rights under the European Convention since the 50s. But what the Human Rights Act was really important in doing was essentially at the time it was billed as bringing rights home, which is that before the Human Rights Act existed, in order to kind of enforce their rights or vindicate their rights, individuals often had to go to Strasbourg, to the European court, and to bring cases against the United Kingdom in order to force the UK to comply with its human rights obligations. Now, a really important part of the Human Rights Act coming into being, which there was kind of cross-party support for, actually, was that, you know, people... The government at the time, the Labour government at the time, felt like individuals in the UK needed a way to be able to enforce their rights practically and effectively so that they didn't have to go to Strasbourg, which involves, you know, not just economic cost, but can take years and years long after, you know, a remedy for your human rights might be actually useful to you. And that's why it's So that's why it was so important, because it also created a new responsibility on all public bodies, whether that's schools, housing authorities, um, NHS trusts, you name it, to protect human rights and to do certain things to put in place the conditions that people can actually have their human rights in their daily lives. And it's been a, you know, transformative change in the way that public bodies run It's not perfect, of course. Nothing is ever going to be, you know, completely perfectly implemented. But 
you know, we've spoken to lots of civil society groups for whom the Human Rights Act has been vital to enabling people to be treated with respect and dignity. And these proposals in the government's proposed Bill of Rights risk kind of making our human rights protections in the UK less powerful than those um, provided for at the kind of European level. But also crucially, by creating this kind of divergence, it could actually lead to more people having to do the same thing that they had to do back before the Human Rights Act came to force, which was actually going to Strasbourg and bringing cases against the UK, which, again, would not only, you know, make it more difficult for people to enforce their rights, but also fundamentally will make it more costly for the government. And so a lot of these proposals are really ill thought out. They actually don't make any sense. Um, as we saw from the consultation paper, a lot of them are like a bit of a hatchet job in terms of their justification and a rhetoric, but fundamentally also in the way that they will be implemented. And that's the most concerning thing, I think, that we have a kind of directionless, but fundamentally ideologically driven drive to repeal vital Human Rights Act protections that will ultimately leave us all worse off. Yeah, so as I understand it then, Jim, we won't withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights, but you're worried that we'll go back to the situation that we had previously, where people will, instead of being able to have recourse to British law, they'll have to fight these lengthy and costly battles in Strasbourg. Uh, and unlike that time, unlike that time before, they might then find that it, whatever decision they get from the U European, under the European courts, m might actually be in conflict with British law under this new UK Bill of Rights? I think it's really important to contextualise this, you know, most recent power grab um, in relation to human rights. The new, or well, not the new, but the current Justice Secretary, Dominic Raab, has kind of, you know, he has never hidden his disdain for the Human Rights Act and the European Convention. And in many ways the kind of shift we saw from um, the update of the Human Rights Act, and update is in quotation marks, that existed in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto, and the kind of complete overhaul and effective repeal that this government is proposing through the Bill of Rights um, legislation, is incredibly, it's, it's worlds apart. And one of the really concerning things that as we kind of read through the consultation document and spoke to lawyers, spoke to academics and spoke to like other civil society groups is that there is a really strong sense that the European Convention as, you know, playing out in the Human Rights Act is stopping us from doing certain things or it's giving too many rights to people we don't like. Um, that's the government's rhetoric, not not mine. Um and we think that one of the really concerning end games is, or the concerning end game is eventual withdrawal from the European Convention. Obviously, the government has maintained and, you know, has always said we have an unwavering commitment to the European Convention. But by putting in place the conditions for rights to be eroded and for, and also fomenting this deep kind of public 
this illusion of public opposition to the Human Rights Act as something that's that's bad or that's somehow detrimental to our society when actually it's it's vital that could pave the way for us to eventually withdraw. Interesting, June. Stay there if you would. And Adam, uh, allied to this, I know that many people are concerned as well by a new policing bill, which is effectively an old policing bill, isn't it? The government faced an, a number of defeats in the House of Lords in the last session of Parliament. Yes. But they brought back now many of the measures that w- that they were frustrated on in the Lords last time. I see. I, th- I do think you have to sort of contextualise uh, this Bill of Rights in the sort of wide border government agenda, which is, you know, clamping down on the the right to protest, uh, some legislation contained within Queen's Speech today, sort of further restrictions on the right to, to protest, um, attacks on the judiciary, um, attacks on human rights lawyers for holding the government to account in, in the courts. So there's just this, this sort of broader agenda of, of, of sort of clamping down on, the, on, on rights, clamping down on the on, on, on people who seek to hold them to account and, and, and uh, oppose oppose things that the government are doing. So there, there's this sort of sort of broader disdain for um, scrutiny and for, uh, for for anyone who opposes or, or seeks to to hold them to account. So I think it is it is quite worrying because we don't know exactly uh, what this bit of rights will contain. Um, so, but there is this sort of broader agenda that we're seeing. And I, yeah, it, I thought about on the podcast uh, uh, very recently as well with Lord Renard, with Chris Renard, mm-hmm. about the elections bill. Again, yeah. th- th- you know, this phrase has been used, I think, in relation to Hungary, you know, illiberal democracy. And I think a lot of commentators will see Britain developing a tendency towards becoming an illiberal democracy. So under the elections bill, as people may know, we're now going to need photo ID, at the ballot yeah. box, which the government's own figures say could disenfranchise more than two million people, just just as one example. But there are also uh, examples in that bill as well, whereby wealthy donors who live abroad will be able to continue to vote and have influence on British elections well, yes, even after just, the current fifteen-year cutoff. It, and it's it's just a chipping away of rights, chipping away of, of democratic. Uh, checks and balances, um, and of the basic democratic rights of people to to, to go and vote, and you know, it's it's not that we're suddenly going to turn into into Hungary, but it's just uh, you know you do have this slow chipping away, um, and when you have a government with a very large majority, as we do, it's actually quite hard for uh, the opposition to resist it, even though there have been attempts, as you say, by the House of Lords to do so. Yeah, interesting that the, the opposition has come from the Lords uh, rather than the Commons. Yes. I suppose the uh, government's 80-seat majority in the Commons makes it rather difficult for the opposition parties to muster a, any kind of challenge. But um, I'll talk more with uh, Adam Bienkoff and June Pang. Just a reminder, if you're listening live, you're listening to Byline Radio. My name's Adrian Goldberg. Or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast, please support the Byline Times if you can. If you take out a subscription to the Byline Times, which is free and fearless, if you take out a subscription, you're not only getting a brilliant monthly newspaper, you are supporting Byline Radio 
and the Byline Times and our wonderful news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com, which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe. And don't forget Byline TV as well, which goes out on Friday nights at 8 o'clock. If you do want to join in and you're listening live on Byline Radio, just tap that little purple microphone in the bottom left-hand corner and we'll let you on getting some interesting comments on social media. This is for you, June. Uh, June Pang from Liberty. This is from a listener called Paul. He says... How will all of this affect EU citizens within the UK? Or will it be the same for EU citizens as it would be for UK citizens? I'm a dual national and hold an Irish passport. Um, Thanks so much um, for the question. I think the key thing to highlight from all of these bills, and I think um, Adam and Adrian, you did a really good job in laying out the many threats that we're facing, not only through, um, you know, the bills that have just been announced, but also the kind of years long um, attack on accountability that we've seen, not only through introducing voter ID, but also sidelining parliament and democratic scrutiny throughout the coronavirus pandemic and, you know, all of the protest legislation, injunctions, etc., that have really clamp down on everyone's ability to speak up for the things they believe in. The government's proposal to repeal effectively the Human Rights Act and replace it with a probably the first Bill of Rights in human history to actually promise less rights and worse protections. Um, and why well, do you say that, Jude? I, I, will, I will press you in a moment to answer the question that was raised by our listener, David. Why are you so confident? Uh, Adam says, you know, the details of the bill have yet to be published. Why do you believe so passionately that this will erode our rights rather than expand them? It's a really good question. And I think part of the success of the government has been to frame this as, oh, it's just an update. It's just, you know, keeping it up to date with the changes in um, society. Um, But the Ministry of Justice has been consulting on its proposed reforms um, to the Human Rights Act or overhaul of the Human Rights Act since December. And I think one, one example from even the process of the actual consultation is really apt in showing that it really doesn't care about the impact that the proposals it is trying to rush, uh, it is trying to ram through will actually have. Up till the last day before the close of the original deadline of the consultation, the Ministry of Justice hadn't published an easy read version of its consultation, which, bear in mind, was more than 100 pages long and extremely technical and legalistic, that even the lawyers and academics that we consulted were you know, completely confused about what it was actually saying. But in locking disabled people out from actually, you know, meaningfully responding to a consultation that will have drastic and disproportionate impacts on their lives, the government showed that it really doesn't care about the impacts of this proposed legislation. It even outsourced the equality impact assessment, which is a basically kind of a assessment that the government has to make of various legislation to show how it would affect um, people from different marginalized communities and people with protected characteristics. It didn't do an equality impact assessment. Instead, it had a throwaway question in the last um, bit of its consultation, which was like, 
Can you tell us what impact this will have on your communities? And I think this really haphazard and, um, you know, I don't know whether to see it as just them being ignorant or them just deliberately ignoring people's concerns. But I think that says really all you need to know about how much the government cares about the way that its Human Rights Act um, repeal will, will affect ordinary people. But of course, we can also look at the fact that the government under former Justice Secretary Robert Buckland had commissioned an independent panel to undertake a really comprehensive review of the Human Rights Act. And the general top line of that um, report, which was 500 pages and took nine months of serious consideration, was that the Human Rights Act is functioning really well. Um, it suggested some recommendations, not all of which we at Liberty agree with, but they were serious recommendations, none of which apart from maybe one or two that um, are relatively minor, were accepted by the government at all. Um, so this is why we're really concerned, because the proposals lack evidence, they're ideologically driven. And at the end of the day, it will be, you know, it will affect every single person's rights, but it will be people who are already, you know, disproportionately um, uh, at the brunt of, say, the cost of living crisis, or people with protected characteristics, um, or marginalized communities more generally, that will be affected by these proposals, and that's why be we're so because concerned. these are the people who seek redress through the law for perceived disadvantages and perceived inequalities, I guess. Yeah, and also people who rely on public services. I mean, we all access public services in our daily lives, but obviously it will be certain people who need to go to their housing authority to request special accommodations. For example, if they have a disability, um, disabled people relied on um, the Human Rights Act to contest do not resuscitate orders during the coronavirus pandemic. Survivors of domestic abuse use the Human Rights Act to hold the police to account over failures to investigate perpetrators of sexual violence. I could go on, but yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so go back to Paul's question then, and Paul's asking the question, you know, how will this uh, affect EU citizens within the EU? within the UK, will it be the same for EU citizens as it would be for UK citizens, as he explains, is a dual national and holds uh, an Irish passport? Every single person in the UK, whether you're an EU citizen, a UK citizen, whether you're a citizen at all of either of these, um, uh, either the UK or the EU, will be affected. Um, but I think it's... Um, a really good point in showing that this is something that affects us all and we all need to learn about it first of all and understand what's at stake because I think um, and I uh, like the way that um, Adam's article kind of presents it which is that it is a very like it's been it's been framed and rammed into this kind of culture war narrative. But fundamentally, these are values that we all share, which is that we all want to live in a fair and equal society where we're all treated with respect and dignity. And we need to resist this as much as possible and resist the government's attempt to shoehorn the Human Rights Act um, and attacks on our fundamental rights and freedoms as something that's niche or something that only certain people care about. Everyone should care about this. Uh, Adam, in terms of some of the more populist measures that might have been present 
in the Queen's speech. It's interesting to note that measures that might have improved workers' rights have been omitted, haven't they? There's been talk in the past, and I mentioned this, not not from any kind of preconceived political standpoint of my own, but just because ministers in the past have discussed the possibility of flexible working, protection against discrimination when you're pregnant, the ability for workers to keep tips without them going to their bosses, you know, which most people... Yes, that was really the most yeah. but, but, but there's nothing of that in there. And a, a bill that I'm passionately interested in, you may be too, um, the idea of a, a new football regulator, there is a line about that in the bill saying that the government will bring forward measures, but there is only one line. Yes, very, very few details, yeah. Yeah, 38, 38 bills, really, will it really, I suppose. So the, the things that the government might have done that would have, if you like, felt more either populist or, or just had more common support, it seems to me possibly they've they've just missed a trick there, really. Well, there was a lot of things, including um, the ones you mentioned, where which were meant to be in the bill and then uh, didn't weren't meant to be in the Queen's speech and and didn't appear. Uh, didn't appear. Um, I mean, we, we were we were told. I mean, it come, a lot of some of this comes back to to Brexit. What we were promised with Brexit, we were told that by leaving the EU, we'd have the opportunity to to actually because the, the 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 warning for those campaigning against Brexit was that we would end up losing a lot of rights and. Uh, but actually, we were promised by Johnson and, and Vote Leave that it would actually give us powers to to give us greater workers' rights and greater uh, food standards, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, that doesn't. If that's the case, they don't seem to be taking advantage of of that supposed Brexit freedom in these in this Queen speech. And yes, there was there's, there's all sorts of measures that didn't appear, including. Um, uh, the interesting one was gay conversion therapy. Um, Boris Johnson suggesting uh, suggested this is an abhorrent practice, which it is. Um, but um, uh, that 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 was we were initially told that it was going to due to a leak to ITV News, it was going to be removed from the Queen's speech. There was then some outrage about that, and uh, it was put back in. But actually, in the detail of the Queen's speech today, we now know that uh, although gay conversion therapy is going to be banned for uh, children for adults if adults consent to it it will not be banned so again it's sort of completely defeats the whole purpose of it and as you mentioned as well uh animal rights as well that was another one that was meant to be in there uh foie gras was imports of foie gras was meant to be banned but again uh because of uh opposition from conservative mps and, and ministers that's been removed as well so the whole queen's speech does appear to have been neutered uh, it doesn't seem to be taking advantage of these supposed freedoms that we said we'd suddenly uh, got. Yeah, indeed. And uh, June, I mean, I know this is perhaps beyond your your remit at, at Liberty, but, you know, I look back to the, the employment bill in 2019 and there was talk of a, an enforcement body to offer greater protection for workers, making sure that tips left for workers went to them in full. You know, just such a such a basic and simple thing you'd think is that is beyond party politics. Redundancy protection for pregnant uh, women and uh, to to end maternity discrimination. Entitlement to leave for unpaid carers. So many of these things, which have been promised, simply not not appearing in this Queen's speech. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we don't work on um, employment rights, but I think 
it's a really key point you're saying um, in that there are so many issues that people care about and the, the government could take decisive action to tackle, whether that's workers' rights or the cost of living crisis, as has already been mentioned, or even, you know, the favorite hobby horse of the government is that um, is the the crisis of the so-called crisis of free speech um, that has also kind of been attached to its messaging around the Human Rights Act and its proposed repeal of that. And I think in so many ways, the government is so expert at tactics of distraction and also um, obfuscation in the sense that on one hand, something can be happening over here and then the government will say that, okay, actually today we're going to put an incredibly different and distracting, but also incredibly dangerous and draconian proposal on the table. Um, we saw this with the Rwanda offshoring deal. We see this with its bluster around free speech and the Human Rights Act. Um, and it's it's kind of hard to know where to look for what the government actually cares about or what it actually wants to tackle. But um, for sure, it's not the proposals and its legislative agenda will not solve the issues that people care about and that people want to speak to them about and will actually lock them out of being able to express these views to them. What we know is is that the uh, the Prime Minister has been advised by his election advisor, David Canzini, to, to focus on wedge issues uh, with the opposition and to, to identify each department has been asked to to find issues where there can be sort of clear sort of culture war and, and, and other divides with the Labour Party. So this, the, the whole, and you can see that sort of running as a thread throughout this, the whole Queen's speech. These are sort of, there's, there's, it's, it's more about kind of finding these divides with Labour Party shoring up the support of his own side rather than having a sort of coherent programme for government to, to help the, the British people. And I think that's, so I think it's important to sort of see it in, in that framing rather than sort of wonder why they're not, <laughs> they don't appear to be putting in place things on employment law and other issues which actually would generally help the people of this country. When you say wedge issues, Adam, essentially, literally stuff to drive a wedge between people, stuff that will divide people into an us and a them. Yes, and, and the the Rwanda um, proposals are is a, is a good e- example of that. Um, you know, quite quite aside from the sort of morality of of, of exporting refugees to a country with uh, a, a terrible human rights record like um, Rwanda, it's just it's com- obviously a completely uh, unmanageable uh, plan anyway. So it, this isn't about solving, and, and it doesn't appear to have had any impact on the number of small boats coming over from from Europe. So the, the, you know, that clearly, and, and, and they were advised that this would be the case by uh, Home Office officials who, who opposed this plan. Uh, so they knew this wasn't a, an effective way to, to deal with the, 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 the real crisis of, of small boats. This was purely about sort of trying to drive a, a wedge with the opposition and before the local elections and, and appear that the government is being so-called tough on immigration rather than actually trying to, to come up with meaningful proposals to, to solve the problem. 
Yeah. Uh, June, I touched on this with Adam, the measures in the uh, policing bill, which were frustrated by the House of Lords previously, which have come back and there would be punishment in these if you disrupt major transport infrastructure, if you lock yourself on to uh, a, a public building and so on. Again, you know, when we're talking about the context of what you regard as an erosion of rights, and we've mentioned the elections bill as well, this policing bill is, is part of this broader context, part of this broader story. Absolutely. And I just want to, I think it actually, um, this is a really key example of the government's hypocrisy Um when it talks about free speech in the Human Rights Act context or on um, BDS or universities, um, whatever it has decided to um, pin its kind of mass to, um, it's incredibly ironic, I guess, um, to see it at the same time in the same Queen's speech introduce effectively rehashed measures that are, you know, incredibly draconian, disproportionate, and will have a massive chilling effect on everyone's right to protest, whether that's through protest banning orders, new stop and search powers for protest, including suspicionless stop and search, as well as, as you say, new offenses of locking on, interfering with national infrastructure and obstructing major transport works. I do want to kind of respond a bit to what Adam was saying earlier, um, to his response to, to the question that, you know, we really need to think about how we're going to oppose these um, pieces of legislation and these policies um, on a principled basis, because, you know, while the government is kind of introducing this new public order bill and obviously the police crime sentencing and courts act just passed, which among other things, um, allows the police to impose noise-based restrictions on protest and lowers the threshold for someone actually committing a protest offence. Obviously, the government is intent on closing down avenues of dissent and accountability. But at the same time, we saw the Labour Party call for injunctions against um, climate crisis protesters, um, I think it was last month or a few months ago. And we really need a principled opposition to the wider um, slate of attacks on our human rights that puts at the center of those why we need protest, why protest is a core pillar of any healthy democracy, and why shutting down dissent is not actually going to, you know, solve anything and will just push people to take other routes and also it just distracts from the issues that people are actually protesting on, including, say, the climate crisis, but also cost of living or energy bills, whatever, what have you. Interesting. In that context as well, it may, it may seem on the face of it to be a, a quite a minor thing, but I think people on reflection may think that it's not. And that's the decision to privatise Channel 4, which many people would regard as a punishment 
by the government and by the culture secretary, Nadine Dorries, for the fact that Channel 4 News, particularly under Jon Snow's uh, on-screen leadership, has been seen as a persistent and vocal critic of the government, much harsher in its analysis, perhaps, than the BBC or ITV or Sky News come to that over many years. No, I, th- I think that's right. And um, just to... Just to respond to, uh, to June's point about Labour, I do think that's a, I think it's a fair criticism of of Starmer's leadership, that uh, although the government have been sort of trying to drive a wedge, deliberately tr- drive a wedge on these on these kind of culture war issues, um, sometimes the Labour Party under Starmer has has in attempt to sort of head that off uh, and not kind of fall into those kind of traps as they see it, has been quite reluctant to sort of take a. A principled stand on some of these issues, not all of them. Um, I think they they took quite a sort of principled stance on on the Rwanda policy, for instance. But on some issues, they have been slightly reluctant to, uh, in the, as they see it, fall into the, the trap. But the, the 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 problem with that is is as June says, you don't then have a sort of clear opposition to some of the, the the worst policies that the government is, is bringing forward and some of the the worst attacks on, on human rights and and i think uh it's a starmer partly it's to do with sort of wanting to sort of draw a line between his leadership and and that of 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 corbyn's and and sort of uh corbyn took a, a more sort of straightforward approach on, on on some of these issues than, than starmer has but the the long and short of it is that there sometimes there is a sort of lack of of sort of fervent opposition to to some of the measures that we've we've been seeing. June, from your perspective, I mean, you are a campaigning group, and you can speak on forums like this. And uh, how, how do you try to rally opposition amongst the opposition parties to make them feel that these issues are worth foregrounding? And indeed, Conservative MPs, many of whom. I've spoken to personally uh, who are uncomfortable with the drift of this government. I mean, it's a really good question and something that um, we have been thinking a lot about. Um, but every time we have the discussion um, with our with our own organization, with others, I think it really goes back to telling stories about people who will be affected and you know, making it real to people that, you know, this isn't just, this isn't just legislation. This isn't just a piece of paper. This isn't, this, no one is going to escape unscathed from this, but it's our family members, our loved ones, our communities that will suffer the brunt. And everyone wants to live in a society where their rights are respected. I think this is something that you know, no matter your political views, no matter your placement on the political spectrum, you want to be safe and you want to know that if one day, you know, your rights are violated or some public body does something that makes you want to stand up for, you know, something that you perceive to be your right, whether that's to you know, accommodations for your disability or your family members or police complaint or something like that. Um, we all need our protections in place. And, and I think that's that's the kind of thing we come back to. Human rights are important because we all have them by virtue of being human. And 
any kind of attack on them is an attack on us all. And while that seems like quite, I guess it is quite a, you know, idealistic principle, it's also something that united everyone after the Second World War. It's it's why, and I guess today, like with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, like it's never been, and, you know, related crises and the climate crisis and all of these things, it's never been more important to put human rights at the heart of what we believe to be the society that we want to live in. Um, and I think it's incumbent on all of us and all political parties and everyone who's trying to fight for a better society to imagine a world in which we might all be able to access our rights in an effective way. And that's the kind of vision we're striving towards. Well, we've got uh, Omar who wants to uh, join us. I'm just uh, letting Omar join us, a regular contributor to our uh, conversations. Omar Moore, who is a, a Brit who lives in the United States, I think I'm right in saying Omar. Hello, welcome. Hello there, Adrian. Thank you very much. Yes, I do live here in uh, San Francisco, California, and uh, appreciate uh, everything that's been said. Um, Adam and June, uh, thank you for your comments as well and your insights. I want to just add something really quickly to what I think June just said. Because I think that something, I think people know this who are listening, that several years ago, Boris Johnson gave an interview where he said the strategy for the media was to throw up as many balls in the air as possible to distract and confuse so that the media wouldn't be able to keep track of whatever crisis that was going to be engineered next. And I think that a lot of the things that we've seen from this conservative government over a number of years have certainly indicated that. And this uh, Queen's speech is also a part of that, too, of some of the most grotesque uh, um, ways that this speech didn't address anything that I think people really need to be focusing on. Um, we've had those local elections last week that were success for Labour and the Lib Dems to a large degree. And June's point about um, an attack on all is a really important one as far as I'm concerned, because that's where we have to really mobilize and unify as people. We must all be fighters for all our causes together. I don't think that we can afford now to only stick up for the causes that we believe in singularly. We have to deal with and, and, and fight for all of the causes out there because all of us are being affected, as June said. This is an attack on all of us, whether it's uh, the situation with women's reproductive rights here in the United States, whether it's an attack on LGBTQ rights, whether it's an attack on the rights of black people, on, on the rights of the voting and voting rights, which is happening in the US and in the UK, we all have to be our brothers and sisters and persons keepers when it comes to this. And that's where we all need to mobilize. And I know that there's a lot of challenges with the protest bill and the elections bill, but the protest bill particularly. But we are going to have to start using these tools, and we are using them. And I say tools, I mean social media, in, in ways that are going to have to continue to be effective for us because the right-wing media is certainly using its tools and its largesse to distract and to confuse and to overload the channels and overshoot the runway, if you will. So I think the most important thing is that the attack on all thing, the attack on all principle is one that is a really serious one and that we have to mobilize around and unify around. And then finally, the last point I want to make, um, and it's probably a long shot, but you never know what can happen because in politics, I know uh, one year or two years can be two or three generations. Um, the possibility of a coalition government 
Uh, that's a question that's probably separate from what we're speaking about tonight, so forgive me. But I just am curious to find out from people if people think there's a possibility of a coalition government between Labour and the Lib Dems two years down the line. And I'm only saying this based upon, again, it's only the the, coali- the uh, council elections. But that's just another thing I'd want to throw out there. And the obligation of these parties to, we have to push these parties to start forcefully addressing these causes, uh, about Labour particularly. We have to push them. And I think Adam's point, uh, I definitely agree with about Jeremy Corbyn. I think that's what Starmer's doing. He's trying so hard to distance himself from Corbyn. But now that is now coming at a cost to addressing some really key issues. So uh, thanks very much. No, no, that's a really interesting final point, Omar. It's kind of up, off the theme, but it's still very interesting in light of those local election results. And as a political and Westminster correspondent, Adam, I, I wonder if you've detected any appetite well, amongst either Labour or Liberal Democrats for this kind of, and indeed the Greens, for the idea of this kind of <laughs> progressive partnership. I mean, to be honest, it's it's kind of less about whether there's an appetite, but it's, it's purely, I think it will come down to a sort of electoral uh, mathematics. And if you look at the results last week, the government is clearly on course, looking at historic trends, to losing its majority at the next general election, us being in a hung parliament. And um, I interviewed uh, Professor John Curtis last week, and uh, as he said, um, once the government loses its majority once it gets fewer than 320 seats then we are clearly in in hung parliament territory and the government has very few friends in the parliament now and so if that was the situation even if labor had fewer seats than the conservatives i think there would be a very good chance that uh, we would be in the coalition territory territory with the most likely partners being um, either labor and liberal democrats or labor and the snp or some combination of those three so I, I do think that's actually a sort of underpriced uh, possibility yeah I, I, suppose, I suppose the question is though is whether they kind of proactively engineer a situation pre-election in which labor agrees to stand down in seats that the lib dems might win and the lib dems well, this, stand down in seats labor might win and so on yeah well the, i mean this, this was what um was pushed by the conservative party last week as as, as somehow being the plan between Labour and Liberal. I mean, obviously, you know, we don't know what conversations happen behind closed doors, but the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats have both denied there have been any uh, such deals. And actually, um, talking to some election analysts last week, uh, they sort of downplayed the possibility that, that, that I think there's been overplayed this idea that Labour and Lib Dems have been standing down. Actually, this, this happens every election is that each political party will target their resources in the most efficient way for them. So, you know, if 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 the Dems are more likely to, to win a seat, then Labour will hold back. And of course, parties are not feel, always fill candidates in every single seat anyway. Um, and Labour will point out that they they stood more candidates than any other party in those elections. So, I I think that a lot of that is down to spin by the government. But as I say. I do think there's a very strong possibility of a, of a coalition at the next election. And actually, I think there would be more appetite for it from Lib Dems and possibly from from, from Labour this time. I think uh, Lib Dems are, have been detoxified from their own time in coalition with the Conservatives, that we saw that in the results, Lib Dems making big gains in last week's elections. And of course, um, and Lib Dems are sort of more closely aligned with Starmer's Labour than they were uh, with Corbyn's Labour. So I, I think 
there's certainly a, a strong possibility of that happening um, next general election. Interesting perspective. Hello, uh, Arna. Thanks for joining us on Byline Radio. Welcome along. What do you want to say, Arna? Hi. No, it's a quick one. Mm. Um, I was listening to what Omar and very much agree with him. I just finished today reading a little book that I'm sure many of you might have read, but is very pertinent to the topic of uh, all of us, uh, you know, being active participants on this. It's called How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division by Elif Shafak. Mm. So I just might put that on your thread, you know, <laughs> write it down. But it's, it's, a very, it's very interesting when she comments about th- this, the fact that the, the anger that we feel and the sometimes apathy and, uh, you know, it's a very interesting uh, short analysis because a very little thin paperback, but I found it very useful. And she touched on that, that we all need to take part. Anna, please, you know, tag, if you can get a picture of the book, Omar's very good at this, you get a picture of the book and then tag in at Byline Radio and at Byline Timers Podcast and we'll retweet it for the benefit of our listeners. Uh, June, I've talked about, thank you, Anna. June, I've talked about this uh, previously on the podcast, you know, the, the way in which uh, politicians and can can use, and indeed, you know, they're what people now are increasingly referring to as their, their client journalists can develop this sense that it's really not worth it that that politicians are all as bad as each other you know the fight's not worth fighting and i mean as a as a campaigner you clearly don't think that's true but it it is something you hear often said isn't it they're all the same one's as bad as another and so on and that's a kind of difficult mindset to try and and wade through i think Absolutely. And I just wanted to say, like, thank you, Omar and Anna as well for, for, I think, first highlighting um, the importance of solidarity um, in the face of the kind of exhaustion, anger, sadness and grief that, you know, not only is caused by this kind of move towards authoritarianism that we're seeing in government, but also the fact that, you know, we've across the world, we've just been in a global pandemic and we continue to live with it in ways that, you know, have completely changed our way of life. And many of us are grieving um, effectively, you know, mass social death and and deaths of people in our communities and our families and, and in our lives. Like, I think it's really... It's really important to to remember that that is the context in which this is all happening, and something that, you know, I think Adrian, you you've really captured that kind of disaffection and disillusionment that a lot of people have with, um, you know, what we might call establishment politics and parliamentary politics, and I think it's precisely for that reason that we need to unite and learn from the really rich and diverse coalitions that have stood up to defend protest rights, the rights of gypsy and traveler communities and over-policed communities in the social movements around the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act, um, especially, for example, those driven by Sisters Uncut and the Kill the Bill Coalition, but also the kind of incredible outpouring of resistance and creativity that has come from you know, different social change movements and activist groups. They really give me 
um, the hope to, to keep going. And I think it's very much, um, through listening to them and seeing how these different groups mobilize that we can gain the tools not only to push for the change we want to see in the world that we have today, but also imagine that um, better world in which we might all have rights that we're able to enforce and protect and defend, um, not as a matter of exception, but as the rule. Really interesting comments, June. Thank you so much for your time tonight. That's June Pang, who is a campaigner, a policy expert at Liberty, the campaign group. Really appreciate having you on uh, your first time. Won't be the last. And many thanks indeed as well to Adam Bienkoff, the Byline Times political and Westminster correspondent, staying up late. Thank you very much indeed, Adam. Uh, really appreciate chatting to you as well. And thank you to everybody who's listened, whether you've listened live here on Byline Radio or on Listen Again at the Byline Times podcast. Really appreciate all your all your interaction. Just the fact that you're listening is brilliant. And thanks also to Harvey White, who handles uh, so many of the backroom duties on the production of the Byline Times podcast. Don't forget to support Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast. Please think about taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. You get details at bylinetimes.com. But for now, thanks everybody for joining in. Stay tuned to our Twitter feed at Byline Radio. That's where you'll find out when we're next going live. We try and do it three or four times a week at least. And we'll speak to you again very soon. So, June, Adam, thank you very much indeed. And thank you, everyone. Cheers now. Goodbye. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks. Bye.